Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Gary Chartier, a distinguished professor of law and business ethics and associate dean of the Tom and V. Zapara School of Business at La Sierra University. He is the author of many books. The latest is An Ecological Theory of Free Expression. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Gary. Great to be here. Is your theory of free expression, as is evidenced by the title, is ecological. Uh, so what does that mean? Yeah, so uh, it means that free expression happens in a context, right? It means that uh, on the one hand, uh, a whole set of social institutions make free expression possible and realize the benefits uh, that uh, free expression brings about. And on the other hand, uh, free expression itself serves to promote and nourish uh, a whole set of social institutions and networks and relationships. So it's not it's not just you come at it from a lot of different angles in the book. It's not just one argument. It's a it's a bunch of different things together that create the argument for free expression. Yeah, a bunch of different uh, considerations all fit together, and a bunch of different uh, kind of nodes in net a network or set of networks all contribute uh, to making it happen. Is there a main I guess underlying moral theory that you're operating within or drawing from? Yeah, so the book uh, proceeds, as a lot of my work does, from within a particular strand of the natural law tradition. Uh, it's rooted in the idea, what I hope is a recognizably Aristotelian idea, that uh, what we should be interested in when we choose is choosing wisely in ways that enable us and others to flourish. And I think free expression plays a pretty crucial role in uh, both uh, sort of expressing, if you will, our flourishing and, uh, and making that flourishing possible. And, and to that, you, you create a few principles uh, uh, that are, you said, four of which are important here. And I was going to go through what some of these principles are. One of them you, you call the principle of recognition. What is that? Yeah. So the idea here is that in uh, at least the kind of Aristotelian natural law theory I'm working with, and I don't claim, by the way, that any of this theory is particularly original with me, but in the kind of theory that I'm working with, I want to emphasize that when we're choosing um, a sensible choice or a rational choice, if you will, a reasonable choice at any rate, is a choice for real goods. So the principle of recognition means ultimately, uh, if a choice is reasonable, it's a choice in pursuit of friendship or aesthetic experience or knowledge or something that actually matters. I So I got to ask right now because you, you use three different terms. Is there a difference between a sensible choice, a rational choice, and a reasonable choice? Um, if we're talking with economists or rational choice theorists, there absolutely is. Uh, the word rational obviously has in that context a pretty uh, uh, specific, you know, specific technical meaning that you know, translates into something like uh, you know, a concern particularly with instrumental rationality. In other contexts, uh, you know, probably we don't necessarily uh, use, uh, use rational and reasonable, for instance, in ways that sharply contrast with each other. But probably to be, to be safe here, uh, let's say reasonable. <laughs> and you have the principle of respect. Yeah, the principle of respect is a natural law principle, but it's one that you know, is very parallel, for instance, I think, to Kant's formula of humanity, uh, and I cash it out as don't purposefully or instrumentally injure other people. At least, uh, or, well, essentially, in fact, it's unreasonable to purposely or instrumentally uh, injure yourself, too, as Kant would have said with respect to the formula of humanity, but that's not what I'm focused on here. And the principle of fairness? 
Um, again, I think basically a parallel with uh, uh, Kant's formula of universal law. Uh, the idea is to act in a way that uh, is, uh, uh, you know, consistent with uh, principles you'd be willing to generalize. And then finally, the principle of commitment. Uh, it helps to make commitments. We can organize our lives effectively by making commitments. I wrote a whole book about that called The Logic of Commitment. Uh, the idea here is that not only our interpersonal uh, commitments, what we often talk about as, uh, say, as promises or whatever, important, but also just personal commitments where we set priorities for ourselves, that this may be a, an effective way of giving structure and meaning to our lives. So then how do these come together to get us to freedom of expression? So the most crucial role they play, though not the only one, I think, is in providing a grounding for an account of property rights. So uh, while there certainly are approaches to free expression that take property seriously, they haven't been the most uh, common. And so I deliberately start out by spelling out in very uh, rudimentary terms uh, my theory of property, which uh, suggests that a whole host of considerations uh, having to do with how, how our lives go well can, in light of these principles, yield a set of what I call baseline rules uh, for how we handle the physical objects in our lives and that those then yield, uh, in turn, uh, kind of robust uh, robust property rights. Respect for those robust property rights uh, provides, I think, a really solid foundation for uh, uh, protecting freedom of expression. Well, and that's just sort of to establish who can make the rules in the in the classic Correct. sense of my house, my rules. I can't go into Walmart with a shirt that says F Walmart and then claim the First Amendment is violated if they kick me out. Absolutely. But your theory is – it does not only apply to government. I mean you, you say a few times in the beginning of the book that – I mean you, you – as from an anarchist standpoint where you regard the Constitution itself as not – terribly binding, I guess. Uh, uh, it also applies to non-government entities to some extent. Yes, I want to be really clear about what I am and I'm not saying there. I think that the use of force is really a, uh, a crucial divide, you know, is the source of a crucial dividing line here. Uh, when we talk about legal constraints and legal protections, we're talking, I think, fundamentally about when force is and isn't appropriately employed. And uh, I absolutely don't want to see uh, actors that aren't using force uh, subjected to force to somehow uh, make them conform with my ideal for for free speech. But I argue that there are moral reasons why a variety of non-governmental institutions uh, certainly might want to take free speech, free expression more generally uh, seriously. And so why we ought to be concerned about what happens in the context of uh, those sorts of associations, even if we recognize at the same time that they ought to have the legal right uh, to, uh, as for instance, with your Walmart example, uh, you know, constrain how their property gets used. It's also important that you define injury. And in, in one of the longer chapters of the book actually uh, gets into the question of what is the kind of injury that we're concerned with. And this goes back to what you just said about force, that that it's the question of whether or not offense or other types of linguistic in, uh, injury, expressive injury, are such injuries that require law to fix them. And you think that that's not true. Yeah, I think uh, it's a good idea to have a bright line rule uh, that delineates what can and can't be uh, the subject of legal penalty. Uh, again, I want to really emphasize, because I think uh, this is something we can easily skate past, that 
uh, law and morality are hardly coextensive, and there are all kinds of things that people do that might be in various ways deeply wrong that we nonetheless don't want uh, the law to get involved in dealing with. And I suggest that at least one simple approach, uh, for which I, I try to offer several uh, overlapping reasons, uh, would be an approach that uh, says that what the law ought to be concerned with, what legal penalties ought to be concerned with, uh, is the use of force against people's bodies and stuff. And so I try to spell out in this chapter an injury, first of all, then a model of what kind of injury the law ought to be concerned with, and then apply that uh, to some claims that are sometimes made about uh, injuries that might result from uh, expressive activity. So that that claim that you just made about there are you know there are plenty of things that we think are deeply wrong that we don't think the law should address or try to rectify. Um, <clears throat> you you say that like it's you know this is I mean you said that this is something that we all accept, but is that true? I mean it it seems like at least in in the United States both the traditionally conservative view and the progressive left's view would simply reject that claim would say that the you know if something is wrong then the law ought to prohibit it um if something is good in the case of say you know like nuclear families or if you're a conservative or whatever else um diversity then the law ought to subsidize or encourage it um what does i mean is that am i overstating the case there or if i'm not what do What's wrong with that idea that that the law is there to enforce moral standards? Yeah, so um, you're absolutely right. I don't think you're overstating the case that there are indeed people who want to talk uh, in those terms. Um, I think I was first and foremost probably responding uh, on a visceral level to people uh, we might encounter sometimes in libertarian circles who seem to think that if one has made the case that something ought to be legally permissible, one has at the same time made the case that it ought to be morally permissible and therefore no moral criticism of it is appropriate. And I get very frustrated with that view, but you're quite right that on the other side, there's certainly the view that uh, once we know that something's morally objectionable, uh, it must follow that uh, we ought to do something about it legally. And so it seems like the... Uh, uh, the kind of uh, response to that I'd want to make uh, at least looks something like this, that we have the, – the, when the law is involved in sanctioning uh, something or otherwise uh, you know, either incentivizing it or disincentivizing it, what's involved is the use of force. Uh, that's what distinguishes the, the legal uh, – uh, response to you know from from some other sort of response, and force I think is special. Force is different, um, not only because um, we have good reason to take people's autonomy seriously, not only because uh, we have I think good reason to take antecedent uh, rights with respect to people's bodies and property seriously for reasons I uh, I try to spell out. Um, for, for a number then of kind of background reasons that are purpose independent, that are content independent, um, we uh, uh, I think have reason to respect certain kinds of limits on people's uh, on what can be done to people and. If we have reason to be concerned about and thus to to limit uh, the use of force, then I think that provides uh, 
get a pretty solid reason to avoid uh, thinking that the law is a kind of universal fix it. Now, in terms of use of force here, it's it's a, a specific sort because I assume in terms of private actors using force against expression, uh, for example, if, you know, to use an example you kind of bring up in the book that if someone came into my house and started playing a movie on on there with a projector on the wall that greatly offended me, uh, could I physically throw them out of, of my course. house? Yeah. yeah, of course you could. Uh, I mean, I, I hope you wouldn't de you wouldn't decapitate them or maim them in the course of doing it, but sure. Yeah, but but you also make the point that it's not that's not so much about the movie. The content of the movie is is not the harm as much as the property right. Because if he came in and started playing a movie that was just a a black square, uh, <laughs> I could also throw them out, yeah. right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, but you say so. Expression does not constitute a legally cognizable injury, but of course that that raises questions of of fraud. For example, what about fraud? Right. So. Um, when I say it doesn't constitute an injury, I mean that in a in a uh, uh, a pretty uh, a pretty narrow way, right? So it might well be, for instance, that let's say I lie to you, and when I lie to you, I'm uh, I am just in virtue of the fact that I'm you know in one way or another messing with your understanding of the world, messing with your cognitive faculties, whatever. Um, that is an injury, and I don't want to deny, of course, that. Uh, deliberately deceptive expression might, in one way or another, uh, end up uh, end up uh, directly injuring you. The question is, what's legally cognizable? So fraud uh, involves the misappropriation of property. It's an interference, thus, with your stuff, and uh, or I mean, I guess we can imagine a way in which it can be an interference with your body. But in any case, and so there's a remedy. There's a there's a remedy for that, which involves obviously returning your stuff and doing whatever else needs to be done to uh, to get you back in the position you were before my uh, illicit action. So it's not that in one way or another expressive activity can't be involved with injuries, uh, but I'm really interested in that uh, section that you were just referencing uh, in talking specifically about whether just the bare fact of expressing an attitude, uh, you know, Trevor's a bozo, whether that on its own constitutes uh, an injury. But how how is that? So you're, you're very concerned with force, but force is, I mean, the reason that we're concerned with force is because of what it does to us, the kind of injuries that the application of force can create. Yes. And so why is this a question, this freedom of expression, and I guess all of this, why is this a question about force and why does force matter versus simply the question of injury degree like, degree of harm right so why why are we concerned about particular kinds of injuries as opposed to just injuries as a whole so i guess i'm primarily interested in uh, this particular kind of injury because of what providing a legal remedy amounts to Right, so a legal remedy is going to involve, uh, in our current legal system, uh, you know, might involve imprisoning me. At any rate, it's going to involve uh, uh, taking my uh, taking my stuff to compensate someone, uh, something like that. And so, because the law itself is involved in the use of force, uh, I'm interested in in injuries that also involve force because 
uh, of the intuition uh, that I have, which I certainly try to defend here, I just assert as an unbrown intuition, that uh, it's a good thing to limit the use of force to those cases in which we're responding to the use of force. So I'm interested in the, this narrow subset of injuries because of the kinds of remedies the law can make available. Now, you, you bring us up this question, too, which I, in the book, which I was popping into my head, and I'm glad you addressed it. Post-traumatic stress, uh, the, the question of expression triggering someone into a deep mental state or very harmful situation, is that is that a different category of expression injury? Yeah, I mean, I think... I, that's difficult, and I don't, and I don't feel like, you know, my attempt in the book to just sort of you know, kind of skate around it uh, and talk about it briefly uh, probably is uh, is adequate finally. Because, I, yeah, I think we can imagine a case in which uh, there really is, uh, say, a, a pre-existing injury that's been done to someone uh, which can be, uh, can be triggered verbally, uh, can be triggered expressively. Um, and, I, and I think we want to treat that as trivial. Um, I'm nervous, of course, about the way in which uh, worries about PTSD have then led to a much broader uh, sort of culture of talk about about trigger warnings and so forth when, when these often don't seem to do really with PTSD but just have to do with things that bother people in various ways. And uh, I really like to try to cabin the discussion of PTSD uh, as narrowly as possible. I, I don't frankly feel like I've reached a definitive conclusion about the best way to handle that, except that um, what I don't want is a set of rules that are designed to uh, deal with the you know, organic injuries that can certainly be involved in PTSD that then are cast in a sufficiently broad way that they cover all sorts of other things and that they contemplate potential injuries that uh, those engaged in expressive activity couldn't reasonably anticipate. Uh, so I think it's a real concern, and uh, I guess I'm still puzzled. Well, it's it's interesting, too, because it, it affects one of the other concerns you bring up, and we see this, I think, on campuses to some degree where they're bringing in the word trauma uh, and using it very for many things when they hear different right. different phrases but that also brings in the problem of just subjectivity question which is very different than the physical force that that if you have someone be able to claim their level of harm and they're the only one who actually knows it and then you have a system that might incentivize them claiming harm that doesn't seem a very stable system to protect free expression right and it's pretty much unpredictable from the standpoint of those engaging in expressive activity you know, there's no way they can sort of coordinate their actions with others, try to be respectful of others, except by just shutting up. And uh, it seems to me that's a uh, that's a pretty undesirable state of affairs. So the more objectively predictable uh, something is, the easier it's going to be to frame rules around it. And I think uh, that concern with objective predictability does really provide a good reason for limiting what we think of as the kind of uh, you know the kind of trauma we talk about. But we we address that a bit in I mean in. Physical injuries too, like I'm forgetting what the eggshell. Eggshell, eggshell plaintiff. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and so there's, you know, we just acknowledge, like, look, it's it's unpredictable. You could do this thing that's totally normal for anyone else, and then it, you know, cracks the skull of the eggshell guy. Um, but you're still, you know, we still hold you liable for that, even though you couldn't have known. Um, so why is why is that? So should we get rid of that principle, or if not, why is that principle different from the subjectivity of trauma? So I think the uh, the eggshell plaintiff case is 
unavoidable. You know, I think we've got to have a rule of some kind uh, in the eggshell plaintiff case because we're talking about um, you know injuries that are going to have to be remedied in one way or another. Um, and I guess I'm you know I'm, I'm not interested in tossing that rule out. When I think about about the speech case, about the the expressive case, I suppose my first my first thought. Uh, would be that while you're quite right, somebody could indeed think about uh, a trauma case, and uh, you know it might well turn out to be the case that I'm, uh, uh, you know, I didn't know that I was, uh, you know, I was really going to going to trigger uh, somebody, and it turns out that I do that, and uh, and there we are. One issue might be the concern that. If we think about this, again, not in terms of just, that's why I think the ecological metaphor matters, not just the expressive, um, you know, the value to the person engaging in the expression of the expressive activity, but the systemic value, the ecological value of the expression, what we don't want to do for the benefit then of the whole uh, social ecosystem is to just start encouraging, incentivizing willy-nilly uh, deep, uh, you know, self-restraint uh, uh, on the part of anyone inclined to say something. So I'd be a little concerned uh, in those cases about a rule that opened that door too widely. Um, you know, I think in a particular case, if I could really show actual physical, you know, trauma, organic trauma, and I think, again, sometimes that's going to be the case, I would be hard-pressed uh, to make a case about that individual instance being somehow uh, completely insulated. But what I am inclined to think is that when you think about this from uh, the perspective of the whole communicative ecosystem, it starts to seem as if we might have reason to, to want to deny relief there. I guess what's wrong, though, with a world where all of us are very restrained in our speech, where all of us are just really conscious of how what we say might hurt others and so try to be very nice and pleasant. I mean, we might we might lose out on, you know, Richard certain, Pryor. Richard Pryor. Um, we, we can think of some things we'd lose out on, but but in general, wouldn't that just be a much more civil world? Well, but the problem, of course, at least a problem, it seems to me there, is that so many different things bother so many different people. Right. It's not as if there's a kind of uh, uniform set of minimal expectations that would, uh, if acknowledged, uh, solve the problem you're talking about. Instead, uh, there's a whole range of diverse responses that people have uh, to different things. And it does seem to me that, yeah, if we uh, spend our time trying to anticipate all of those possible responses and restraining ourselves accordingly, then speakers of all kinds uh, would be disadvantaged, but more importantly, listeners of all kinds would be disadvantaged. Uh, you know, if I have to, if I have to try to guess in advance uh, what might be a serious problem, and I therefore say uh, what's as inoffensive as possible. Uh, the end result is that those who might otherwise benefit from what I have to say won't. I mean, think about the most obvious example here that ought to really concern us, I think. Um, 
you know, a whole range of political uh, discussions that we might have. And uh, I mean, I, I really want to stress that I don't think free, freedom of expression is valuable exclusively or primarily for political purposes, but we often think in the First Amendment context of, uh, of the political context is especially crucial. Um, pretty clearly, so many things people say, uh, even in kind, gentle tones uh, about uh, opposing political ideas and figures will be deeply offensive to others and uh, deeply unsettling. Anarchism troubles a lot of people, no matter how nicely it's stated. Uh, I've noticed that. <laughs> I, I wrote a brief for the Supreme Court a few years ago uh, in a case about a Confederate license plate and whether or not the state of Texas could prohibit Confederate license plates. And that brief defended offensive speech uh, on this sort of instrumental ground, which you get into later in the book. But one of the defenses was that if things that were used to be offensive, there are things that we should be talking about and like sort of, for example, female sexuality in, in 1940, it would it just offended many people to even talk about female sexuality. And so you need people like comedians and people like Kinsey to offend people to begin with so you can actually have a productive conversation eventually about things that we should be able to talk about. And that usually begins with offense. Uh, and there's a, li a line you have that I really liked, which was the state of being offended or insulted is pointless. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think that's I think that's right. I think that uh, there are all kinds of things that our words might uh, might do that uh, that ought to be ought to be troubling. If I say, uh, you know, I can't stand what you said on the show today, and I'm headed over to your house tonight to you know to beat the stuffing out of you, uh, you have every reason to be concerned about that. Uh, maybe that's a reason for you to you know hire security guards or call the police or just wait up with a shotgun. But uh, the problem with what I said is that I posed a threat to you. It's not that I uh, you know was just uh, uh, you know said something that might have seemed offensive. Isn't isn't offense though just a form of I guess a a broader moral sense like i mean we we don't want to jettison the feeling of offense or tell people that you know it's wrong to ever feel offense because offense offense can give us meaningful information about the acceptability of what's been said um whether then we in the future should say things like that so i mean are you are you counseling against getting offended because it's pointless or are you simply saying this this more of like a wallowing in it is the problem I think there are all kinds of things that ought to, again, that ought to trouble us. So, uh, you know, if uh, if you announce, uh, you know, you're you're Donald Trump, and you announce that, uh, you know, you're going to execute a drone strike uh, that's going to kill a bunch of people at a wedding, I certainly ought to be deeply, uh, deeply uh, saddened and angered by that, and I ought to push back at it. But I don't think. Um, that it helps on top of those responses to the behavior that you're, you're signaling there to get offended. So, yeah, I mean, I am actually in the book for good or ill. Uh, maybe I'm just running it up the flagpole to see who salutes, but I do, I, I am indeed in the book advocating uh, just letting go of offense as a separate kind of, uh, you know, response uh, among the sort of repertoire of, of moral emotions that we might bring to bear. Um, I, I really find it unhelpful. Now, now, many people, especially the increasing illiberal left uh, who is against free speech, argue that that hate speech and letting you know Charles Murray speak on campus and things like this, what they actually do is they foster a world that uh, keeps them keeps people of color in a 
subju- subjugated state. It allows people to have ideas that ultimately hurts the people on the bottom of the toting pole in particular. Uh, and it, that seems, if that's true, uh, I guess we could debate whether or not that's true, but if that is true, that seems like an injury. We're, if we're talking about how does expression injure people, maybe the entirety of expression of the KKK in the 1880s or the 1920s created has helped create a system that injured African Americans at that time, and that's why it should have been restricted. Uh, some, certainly, somebody could take that view, uh, and I don't want to just uh, trivialize it uh, in responding. But I think that uh, the injuries that are done by the KKK. Um, are injuries that uh, might be reflected in or encouraged by uh, the speech that uh, uh, Klansmen might make, but those injuries uh, are in fact the injuries that happen when people are beaten up or lynched. Uh, they're injuries that happen when businesses that might want to, you know, say accept you as a customer don't because uh, the KKK is lurking around the corner to uh, uh, to threaten. So, on my view. The uh, uh, while it is certainly the case that speech can contribute in various ways to unhealthy and uh, indeed deeply destructive patterns of social behavior, when we're talking about what the law ought to do, uh, it seems to me uh, the law ought to be concerned with the bad behavior that the speech encourages. We, uh, on my view, it's really crucial uh, to recognize that there's always a gap between speech uh, or expressive activity more generally and action that is promoted by the speech, that the actor who engages in uh, injurious conduct of one kind or another always has a choice about what to do there and ultimately has to be responsible for that. So uh, can uh, uh, can speech encourage a, a, an undesirable social climate? Absolutely. When we think about the bad behavior that we want the law to be involved with, it seems to me it's the, the bad behavior that happens when those in that social climate make particular choices. I think we also have to be concerned is and I, one of the reasons I like your book a lot is, as you say, with the ecology of free expression where – Sure, this might be true to some extent, but there's other considerations too, and you do that in Chapter 4. One thing that I always bring up when I talk to students in particular about free speech is remember that there will be government officials enforcing these rules. And and sometimes I say that my baseline rule for free speech is to, today – Today you, tomorrow me. So if today I restrict your expression tomorrow, the next government official will restrict my expression. And so talk a little bit about public choice and class and and how that factors in. Yeah. So, I mean, I think one of the biggest uh, mistakes that uh, I think um, people who want the government to do things about various ills that they uh, are concerned about. Uh, One of the biggest uh, mistakes, it seems to me, that such people make is in treating whatever rules they promote as practically self-enforcing, right? So uh, the rule will be interpreted in the most rational, most appropriate way possible, and it will be enforced without friction and uh, and so forth. And we we know that that's just false, right? Uh, In point of fact, uh, rules will be enforced by institutional actors whose personal incentives don't go away uh, just because they uh, come to occupy institutional roles. Maybe they acquire some additional incentives in those roles, but they've still got 
uh, ideological biases. They've still got a desire to benefit themselves and their cronies. Uh, they also will have uh, the extra desire, now that they are in institutional roles, often to uh, beef up the institutions and, and enable them to uh, uh, continue to thrive in various ways. And so when we ask that uh, the government in one way or another get involved in uh, restricting what we take to be injurious speech uh, or injurious expressive activity, uh, it's just uh, deeply, uh, I think, uh, naive to imagine that the government actors who do this won't be pursuing their own, uh, uh, their own objectives in one way or another. And so if, again, while I don't believe we should uh, ever treat uh, political speech as the paradigm case, or the only case that matters, it does matter a lot that speech is available, that expressive activity is available to hold political actors accountable. And the more you give political actors the freedom to interfere in uh, expressive activity, to interfere with expressive activity, uh, the more you create for them opportunities to interfere precisely with that activity, which would hold them accountable. Does prohibiting uh, political actors or agents of the state from um, getting involved in speech, from you know punishing those who say things that we don't like or whatever else. I mean, so on the one hand, yes, that that means that they can't over respond or punish the wrong things. But does it also potentially create by not having that speech be punished um, legally? Does it create almost a, a vigilante problem where the the non-state actors <clears throat> overreact to the offensive speech, so to speak. So I'm thinking of like the you know, our epidemic of like Twitter shaming um, and the way that people's lives can be outright destroyed by the piling on um, when they you know make an uh, you know an off-color joke or has Justine landed? Has yet. Justine landed yet? Like that sort of thing, and that maybe. If we if we simply said it's not okay, like this kind of speech is this sort of offensive speech is is legally barred, um, and you're going to get punished, then there might be instances of people getting punished who didn't deserve it. There might be um, instances of people checking their speech more than they needed to, but the legal penalties that they might suffer could be substantially lighter than the mob justice that that comes down now. Yeah, Aaron. I wish I had a. I wish I had a, a glib response to that. Uh, I. I don't. I mean, I. I share your uh, deep discomfort with with that kind of mob justice and uh, the tendency of folks to to pile on. Um, and I'm not sure I see ultimately uh, a response to that that doesn't involve. Uh, you know, a, a deep-seated cultural shift uh, in what people people regard as appropriate. And so, uh, you might think the availability of legal penalties um, could, in one way or another, help to effect that kind of cultural shift. Uh, I suppose one might imagine, alternatively, that the legal penalties would just reinforce people's thought that their uh, their piling on was entirely appropriate. And uh, that uh, see, you know, the law is uh, uh, the law is, is intervening here and uh, putting this this uh, nasty person in his or her place, and uh, weren't, weren't weren't we right to make a you know to make an issue of it? Um, I, I despise that kind of that kind of reaction. Um, 
I still tend to think that uh, physical force against bodies and stuff is in a separate and especially troubling category, and I'd really like to minimize that, even if over the short term uh, the furies uh, come out uh, in uh, in other uh, in other contexts. But I I certainly don't have anything dogmatic to say about that. Well, I think it's important to. to realize when it comes to the social media world always, and I'm telling people this all the time, that in the history of, of the the future history of social media, we are in infancy right now. So we're actually creating social norms uh, in the technological world right now, and it's all very new. And I think that the Justine story, for example, has resonated with more and more people that that was particularly horrible. And so we learn maybe that will in t 20 years it will be just considered very gauche to to do that kind of stuff to people hopefully let's hope um, <clears throat> now you also discuss uh freedom of expression as having instrumental instrumental value which which has you have many many bullet points of what sort of things they are we always talk about the marketplace of ideas but you expand beyond that what sort of instrumental value does freedom of expression have yeah, so, you know, that's really uh, in, I think, modern free speech doctrine. And, you know, if you think about the work of people like uh, like Milton and Mill, who helped to kind of lay the groundwork for that, it's the instrumental approach that's really uh, gotten probably the most attention, right? So I've tried to talk about other factors before getting to that, because I think it's been, it's been discussed so much. So talk about, you know, about the importance of property rights, about the way in which expressive activity uh, is an expression of autonomy and should be respected for that reason and, and so forth. Um, but I do end up uh, focusing quite a bit on the instrumental value uh, of expressive activity, which I think fits really nicely with the ecological metaphor, because it, it really has to do with benefits that are often dispersed very widely throughout society. Um, and so sometimes they're individual, but sometimes they really are very widespread. So we start out, it seems to me, uh, the classic example is talking about knowledge and truth and the way in which um, the debate that can happen uh, as uh, different uh, positions are expressed and then confronted uh, you know, by alternatives uh, can really help uh, for the rest of us uh, and also for the participants sometimes to figure out more clearly what it makes sense to think. Uh, but I also suggest, yeah, there are some other instrumental uh, consequences that we ought to be uh, very happy about. Uh, those include, I think, just giving people uh, new opportunities to learn how to make good choices, to engage in practical reasoning. Uh, they include uh, holding uh, not only politicians, but other you know, kind of actors out of the public space, both governmental or private, holding them accountable. Uh, uh, and then finally, um, a particular favorite of mine, I guess, uh, I talk about the way in which we ought to see, uh, this is, is Mill's phrase, but experiments in living uh, can be seen as instances of expressive activity, right? That it's not just that uh, I go and, uh, you know, I try a new way of, uh, a new way of being, whether it's living in a commune, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, engaging in polyamory, you know, all the different things that people experiment with in one way or another. Um, those are things that are interesting and uh, sources of learning for the participants, but I think we can also see these as uh, ex 
expressive and as conveying ideas to uh, uh, to the wider public and helping people to, to make sense of what they what they think of these things. So I talk, for instance, about an interracial uh, community in uh, mid 20th century Georgia and the way in which uh, you know surrounding observers in a highly segregated society could be deeply unsettled, uh, not by the thought that, for instance, those involved in this community were pressuring them to uh, uh, change the law or, uh, you know, demanding integration now, but just by showing that in the context of this, uh, you know, this environment, uh, people from different uh, ethnic and cultural backgrounds could get along just fine, and in so doing, uh, call into question the perceived necessity of uh, existing uh, uh, segregation. And so I think, um, yeah, experiments in living should be seen as, uh, as expressive and uh, as yielding instrumental benefits too. So I think there's a whole, a whole range of ways in which expressive activity yields, uh, yields these instrumental benefits. That, that seems like an awfully broad definition of expression. Like is there under, I mean, along those lines then, is there any behavior that human beings could engage in that does not count as expressive? So I think in most of the cases I have in mind, the expression is intentional, right? So if we're talking about, uh, um, you know, conveying information uh, and people understand themselves to be conveying information, let's say, for instance, to hold, uh, you know, a politician or a CEO accountable, um, that's pretty deliberately and self-consciously expressive. Uh, I just want to note that uh, there are other kinds of uh, uh, contexts in which we definitely can see behavior as conveying expressive content. I think you're quite right that it's not always going to be intentional and that the most natural label to apply isn't going to be expressive. So the people, you know, let's say in the commune don't think of themselves as first and foremost uh, you know, living their communal life as a matter of expression. Uh, I still think, though, as a uh, as a third party observer, uh, when I think about how you know society wide learning takes place, it certainly does take place through uh, the observation of what people are doing there, and we can see the the activity therefore as secondarily expressive. Uh, obviously, I don't think that uh, you know a case for freedom of expression ought to rest primarily on those kinds of cases where expression isn't the primary purpose and isn't the natural way to characterize what's going on. I just wanted to note that I think there are benefits of a kind that we can recognize as associated with expression uh, that come along with uh, those kinds of experiments in living, for instance. Now, you, you bring up some instances at the end, case studies of, of, that you think are some of them are problematic for free expression. Uh, one of them uh, is intellectual property, and you have quotes around property. So I guess we see where you're where, where you're coming from in that debate. Yeah. So I mean, I'm I, I think I I side here with uh, uh, with those libertarians who tend to think that intellectual property rules, in fact, uh, are counter to. Uh, rights in physical property and also tend to inhibit uh, the exchange of information. Uh, obviously, there are going to be counters to that that uh, you know will emphasize the way in which intellectual property uh, rules might, in one way or another, encourage the expression of information. And that's a, a long and, and detailed argument that I try to engage in in a little more detail elsewhere, and other people, of course, uh, even more. But I do at least attempt to cite uh, 
studies that uh, provide reason to believe that uh, those intellectual property rules don't yield the informational benefits that they're often taken to, and uh, it's clear, on the other hand, that they can be used to restrict access to information, uh, restrict the flow of information uh, in a way that I think we, we might well find troubling. To, you get into private action here and to sort of talk about it more in a virtue ethics sense. So uh, I got to ask you about Colin Kaepernick and the the kneeling and all those things. Is it, How should we view those in the context of your theory of free expression? Yeah, so that was very much, uh, of course, in the news when I was finishing the book. And, uh, um, you know, my view uh, certainly is that uh, – uh, Trump only made matters worse, as he usually does, by uh, uh, by getting involved and trying to uh, urge that the uh, uh, you know the owners, in one way or another, uh, stop the players from uh, uh, their uh, their behavior that he saw as disrespectful uh, to the flag, to the troops, to him, whoever. And uh, you know, I think that if you're if you're an owner, if you're operating uh, a, a football team. You certainly need to be aware, uh, at least to some degree, of the extent to which uh, behavior of players on the field may, uh, you know, impact uh, ad revenue and ticket sales. And I don't want to uh, be insensitive to the pressures that those kinds of things may uh, may place uh, on owners. But I think that it's also really important uh, that. Uh, uh, both that the president of the United States, I think, not get involved in talking about what private actors ought to do uh, in this context, and that owners at least take us, you know, take a second before assuming that they're really going to uh, to take an irremediable hit here, uh, to uh, really allow players the opportunity to express themselves. I uh, uh, I respect the uh, the courage of the the players who do want to uh, call attention to. Uh, police violence and other kinds of abuses, um, if they can do that uh, in a way that's, uh, that's not disruptive and that uh, you know, doesn't bankrupt the teams, um, I certainly think it, uh, it matters uh, for the teams to, uh, to respect the contribution that those players are making to, to public understanding of the debate. Our current culture of free speech is fairly troubling, uh, both, both on the left and the right seem to be increasingly upset about people expressing themselves freely and increasingly claiming offense at everything, often in a highly inconsistent and unprincipled fashion. Do you do you see any glimmers of hope? Do you think that this is going to get worse before it gets better? Is it going to get better or is it just going to get worse before it gets worse? Um. My ability to predict the future is really limited. Uh, right now, however, uh, I don't feel very optimistic, frankly. I, uh, I feel as if uh, – so on the one hand, uh, as you say, uh, say for instance, uh, campus folks on the, on the statist left who, uh, who seem to be uh, quite unhappy with speech that uh, uh, you know, they, they regard as inappropriate uh, certainly don't immediately show signs of uh, backing down. I know there have been uh, arguments about how widespread uh, campus suppression of speech really is. There have been back and forth uh, discussions of the, uh, the numbers there. But uh, at any rate, uh, certainly the examples we see are troubling. But then it's very clear that the same folks on the right who uh, 
dismiss uh, their counterparts on the left as snowflakes are themselves really unhappy when, you know, say someone, uh, uh, you know, posts an image of a decapitated Trump or something like that. And, you know, they, they're very willing to jump on the bandwagon of, uh, uh, you know, calls for, uh, uh, you know, stigmatization of those who, uh, who express what they regard as views that are outside the pale. I, I do think it's an across-the-board phenomenon. I think you're absolutely right, Aaron, and uh, it bothers me. Um, if there's any glimmer of hope, it's just that, you know, maybe technology provides ways for people to communicate uh, that are relatively difficult to suppress and that are relatively anonymous. And, you know, unfortunately, that's going to mean uh, often people engaging in anonymous conduct that's itself pretty nasty. Uh, so I, I don't know. I'm, if there's a tiny glimmer of hope, technology might provide it. But I think the culture as a whole is anything but hospitable to, to free expression at this point. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoyed today's show, please rate and review us on iTunes. And if you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.